0: Welcome to the Late Fragments podcast. In this episode, I'll be talking to the actress, writer, and television personality Miriam Margulies. Best known for her comic turns in Blackadder and Harry Potter, she's also won several awards for her more serious roles, fronted a number of BBC documentary series, and over the course of a 55 year career, voiced hundreds of books, radio plays, and commercials. Her no-holds-barred appearances on the Graham Norton show have become the stuff of legend, and she has a TikTok following that would make Kim Kardashian sit up and take notice. But Miriam was not at all what I expected. Her reputation may be as a truth-teller, sometimes to the point of overshare, and by the way, her autobiography This Much Is True does not disappoint on that front, but her public persona belies a much quieter, more thoughtful truth. Yes, she swears and knows she doesn't have any filters, but there is, as I'm discovering is almost always the case with people in the public eye that you think you know, so much more to her than that. Life is like a cheesecake, she says. You want to have as much as you can. I hope you enjoy listening. Miriam, you're the best person to be talking to because there's a line in your book where you say, when people say to me, I never talk about money, religion or politics, I say, what the bleep do you talk about then? <laughs> yes.
1: Well, these are the subjects that people are fascinated by. Uh, sex, money, politics and religion. They are the things people want to talk about. Um I do have other subjects. I like talking about old age and genealogy and the war and being Jewish and all those things. But, you know, I, I like the central subjects. And um, it isn't bad form to talk about mummy because it's an essential part of life and we all have to
0: have an attitude towards it. I quite agree. I Do you find your book is called This Much Is True? And telling the truth, if you tell the truth, according to you, you shame the devil. Yes,
1: well, I i, I was always brought up to tell the truth. Clearly, uh, several prime ministers have not felt the same <laughs> need or, or had a different upbringing. But I think the truth is very important. You know when you're doing the wrong thing. You know when you're lying. It's perfectly clear to each person. And I think everybody has to make a moral choice, that our lives are packed with choices, moral choices, and we have to stand up and be counted. So I do tell the truth. I don't lie. I don't think I've ever lied. I I don't see the point of it because, especially now, because I won't remember what lie I've told and I'll get found out. There's, there's, There's no point at all.
0: Are you happy to start with religion? Absolutely yes of course. You've described yourself as militantly secular which is very secular indeed. It's it's difficult uh to to say
1: what I really think about this without offending people and I I don't ever want to offend. I seem to spend most of my life offending people um, and people take umbrage incredibly easily but uh, you know to me religion and god is is mumbo jumbo it's just a lot of nonsense and morality is a different thing that is absolutely what i uphold but i i cannot see the point of religion and i think there's an awful lot of hypocrisy and and dis you know, untruth about it. And it also divides people, look what happened in Israel, look what happened in Ireland, uh, look, look at the Crusades. Uh, the the religion says that it's meant to, you know, bring people together and do good and um, in some ways provide a moral background, but it doesn't do any of those things. So I just feel embarrassed when people uh, say that they, ha- you know, that they have faith. I don't have faith, and I I don't think I ever really did. My parents certainly did, and I was brought up, um, you know, not ultra orthodox, but I was I was brought up. I think I think we call it observant. And the funny thing is, I am still observant. I still observe many of the uh, Jewish dietary laws and other laws uh, without believing that there is a God to oversee the matter. I just do it for my parents.
0: And your parents were both convinced believers, were they?
1: Yes. We didn't actually talk about it much. It was just a given, you know, um, We didn't go to synagogue every Saturday because my father was a doctor and he worked uh, on Saturdays. But um, we went to synagogue on the three main holy days of the Jewish year. And, you know, we were members of the synagogue and um,
0: I am still. Can you remember the point that you and Belief parted company or don't, do you think you maybe never had it?
1: I don't I think that there was a, an epiphany or anything like that. I just s- slowly realised that there was a position I could hold, which was of, of atheism. And sometimes I think, you know, you should head your bets and say you're an agnostic and say you don't know. Which is the truth, because I don't know. But I, I, I see absolutely no sign of any kind that there is a God. Um, uh, you know, either an old man or woman in the sky who, who looks down. And I obviously don't believe in Jesus. I never did. I think he was a damn good political leader. I've always thought that. But um, really, I, I don't have any insights about religion. I believe that we should do good, um, have a, a moral check within us so that we follow the right path. And I believe largely, I suppose, in the Ten Commandments. But I don't think of them as religiously inspired. I think that's about how you live, how you live your life. And for me, the central tenet is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I I think that the English are naturally anti-Semitic. Do you? Mm. I think if you say, you know, what comes into your mind if I say the word Jew to an English person, it's not a nice thing at all. I think anti-Semitism is very much... Much more widespread than it was uh, when I was growing up, because it was just after the war, and people were so appalled at what had happened that anti-Semitism had to be kept down a bit. But the um, now, because of Israel and the appalling happenings of the Israeli government and the cruelty meted out to the Palestinians, um, it's okay to be anti-Semitic, and um, I think people naturally are not. Particularly the Labour Party, although I think it is a, a, it is a prejudice which, which ignorant people have, rather than schooled people. On the other hand, I think many members of the upper classes, and the Tory Party is definitely anti-Semitic. So, um, and when I meet it, I hate it and I stamp it out and I, I'll call it out. You know, I really hate it, and I'm very proud of being Jewish. I think it makes me terribly interesting and um, a person of, of intelligence and uh, good food taste, um, we have better food. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to be writing about this in my, in my next book, that, uh, you know, in our family, we felt very sorry for Christians. We felt that they were kind of second-class citizens. <laughs> they, they didn't know what good food was. They didn't know how to cook. They, they didn't know, they weren't clever. They, they were sort of stupid people. That's <laughs> what we thought of Christians.
0: Do you think um, your parents would mind that, that you're not a practicing Jew? Yes, I do.
1: Well, the funny thing is I am a practicing Jew. I'm just not a believing Jew because I keep the dietary laws. I don't eat pork. I don't eat shellfish. I don't mix meat and milk. I keep Passover, I fast on Yom Kippur, you know, all these things which I was brought up to do. But I do it for my parents. I don't do it for God. God can manage. I do it for my parents.
0: <laughs> can you tell me a little bit about your parents who do sound wonderful people?
1: I I think they were wonderful. Um and they were they were very much themselves they they i see them very clearly in my mind uh, my, my mother was a uh, lower middle class not well educated left school at 14 um she was shrewd she was watchful she was guarded but she was also full of fun and a natural show off as i am and um wanted to be an actress, but that was not possible for a Jewish girl at that time. A nice Jewish girl would, would not do such a thing. Um, she was a, inf- an infinitely good businesswoman and um, she was a social climber. So when Dr. Margulies joined the, the local Jewish tennis club, Jewish tennis club, because at that time Jews were not allowed to or not welcomed, at um, tennis clubs um she thought aha he's for me and so she set out to get him and she did because she knew that a doctor's wife had status and i think that's what my mother always longed for was status was um, she
0: was she in love with him do you think
1: not at the beginning i think at the beginning she thought he was you know good looking and and nice, but I don't think she she loved i don't think she was in love with him, but she grew to love him, and she certainly loved him for for the whole of their married life she she adored him, but not at the beginning at the beginning it was her head, not her heart that brought them together uh My father was an altogether a passive creature, I think he was um he was educated. He it was the first member of his family to go to university. And he was, um, he he read, he read books. He was, um, but he was afraid. I think there was something about him that wasn't brave. Whereas my mother was absolutely brave. And <clears throat> he always used to say if there was any difficulty, you know, business difficulty or, if he had an argument with anybody, he would always say, you speak, Ruth. You speak. And I used to hate that phrase because it, it epitomized for me his his smallness, his, his lack of courage. And mummy would always do it. She was up there. She would do it. Um, but he was quiet, completely honest. He always said to me, you know, he was never... Uh, Fudge your taxes. You must pay your taxes, absolutely on the on the nail on the rope, exactly what you have to pay. Do it. Never try and cheat. And um, I never have. I've always been super careful about about taxes, and that was something my father in in, in culled, culled into me. Um. But they were they were uh, loving to the point of suffocation. <laughs> they were absolutely they were they they adored me, and um, I I adored them. I adore them still. I, they're still with me in, in every way that you can think of. I I just can't hear my mother's voice because she was struck with a with a an awful paralyzing stroke which took away her speech for the last seven and a half years of her life. And I can't hear her voice. And that to me is really tragic. I can yes. hear my father's voice, which was always Scottish. He had a, a Scottish accent which he ne- never lost. But I wish I could hear mummy's voice. I can remember the things she said to me. Um, One of her naughty, well, not naughty, but one of her sort of slightly silly phrases was MKB, mummy knows best. (laughs) And I've now adapted it to MKB, Miriam knows best.
0: (laughs) Does your confidence come from the love, do you think? Oh, yes, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because from the minute I popped out, I you know, they were married for eleven years before I was born because my mother didn't want to have children. She was afraid. Uh, but from the moment I arrived, her whole life was dedicated to me, not to my father. And he must have been aware of that. But I don't think it was ever discussed. I mean it was just obvious that Miriam was the was the centre of everything. Um, And so I was never in doubt that I was adored, never. And that does a lot to help a child. You know, I think that that's all a child needs really, is total love. And I had unconditional love from my parents. And I've always expected to be loved. I'm always surprised when I read, you know, people don't like me. And obviously when you're in the public eye, you know, people have opinions and i see those opinions um what was it today somebody wrote in on facebook what a what a vile hag she is or something like that oh no and i thought i thought how odd you don't know me if you know me you'd love me (laughs) you know i just i just think that
0: Is money something that you've valued in your life? Does it motivate you? Uh, I'm not sure completely how much it motivates
1: me because, for example, I won't do anything with Piers Morgan and he offered me a large sum of money. Um, I think it was 50,000 and I wouldn't dream of having anything to do with him. You, on the other hand, I don't think have offered me anything, and I'm doing it because I I want to.
0: Yes. Um, so you're... so
1: I'm not I'm not motivated by money, but I I don't I don't want to be um, taken for a ride. I mean, I remember I was offered a part in a, a day on a film in Hollywood, doing a, a, a bit with Barbara Streisand, oh. and they said, you know, we'll we'll bring you we'll. Uh, was in a, in a film called uh, The Guilt Trip with Seth Rogen. And um, they said, "We'll, we'll, you know, we'll give you first class accommodation and first class fares both ways and a thousand pounds. I said, a thousand pounds? You must be fucking joking. <laughs> and I said, to, I said to my agent, you know, ask for 25,000. And I got it. You know, and I, I should have probably got a lot more, but I just thought, you know, they must think I'm born yesterday. I don't want to be taken for a ride. So I like money, and at the moment one of the things I'm doing, which is entirely for money actually, is called cameos. They're little um recorded on the telephone on your on the iPhone uh, messages that people pay for. You know, oh, birthday or pep talk, or um, you know, anniversaries and things like that. And they pay people, pay me. And I've got, for example, today I've got 17 to no. do. And um, let me just see how much. Um, uh, I think it's I'm getting over 2,000. So if I do 17 today, I'll get over 2,000 pounds.
0: My goodness.
1: And that seems to me to be an awful lot of money. But a lot of celebrities do it. And I didn't know anything about it. But it was Sylvester McCoy, who's a friend of mine, who was Doctor Who number seven. And he he said to me, um, you know, he was talking into his phone one day. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm, I'm doing a cameo. I said, oh, what's that? So he explained. And I said, oh, I think I could do that. He said, yeah, well, I'll put you up for it so he Brilliant. introduced me to the to the firm and i i now do it and i'm one of their top earners you know since since um in the two years since covid kind of ruined our lives for us i've made um over 200,000 pounds
0: oh miriam that's amazing do you ever have to do anything say anything strange or is it really only happy birthday or does well, anyone... <laughs> uh,
1: the difficult ones are when they say that their friend is dying of cancer and could I sort of cheer them up? And that's hard. That's a hard thing to do. Um, and um, the other thing people sometimes ask me to do is is to roast them, which is an American term. And it means to, to sort of say, say awful things about them as a joke. I don't really like doing that because I don't like saying nasty things about people even when I don't know them. But mostly it's birthdays and anniversaries and, and sometimes people, if they're going in for an operation, they want a, a bit of a pep talk. And I do like doing that because I think that makes, you know, that does cheer people up. But um, it's an extraordinary little sort of extra of, of money, You know, while I'm not doing anything, you know, I can do it on the loo or in the car park. In fact, (laughs) I often do it in the car park, very often.
0: And you're writing another book? Yes. um, Is that because you've made so much money from your first book? Well,
1: yeah, well, uh, my uh, publisher uh, asked me to. And again, they paid me such an enormous amount of money that I couldn't say no and i never thought that i would write a book in the first place and then to write another book i could hardly believe it but i am i am doing it and i am um, it's going all
0: right is it a secret
1: well it, it obviously it's about me and the people i know um, and i'm doing a book tour in october uh, and i'm doing 23 cities including i think um Well, I've got a a sold-out night at the London Palladium. The London Palladium! I can't believe it. Amazing. It is amazing. Because I'm not a stand-up comic. You know, I'm a little old lady, and I hobble in on, on two sticks and sit in a chair, and I have an interlocutor with me. It changes every day, a different person. And I have wonderful people. I've had Joe Brand and Simon Callow and Julian Clary and... Um, you know really interesting people so and it's fun I, oh, I like an audience I'm, I'm I'm afraid I'm just honestly uh, a transparent show off <laughs> <laughs> that is the only explanation latterly it's just sort of got better and better and I don't really understand it but um, I, I don't question it I just think well thank fuck for
0: that <laughs> <laughs> do you think it's a do you think it's about um your authenticity which is remarkable you're so very much you and maybe people respond to that I mean if you well, have I suppose it must be yeah i mean uh, i don't
1: know what it is i mean because i've asked all my school friends and my college friends you know was i like this then was i am i like i was and they say yes you're exactly the same you're just the same as you always were um and i think well then how did it happen but it did you know it did and i'm very grateful for it but i think it must be because i i do say it as it is i tell it like it is i'm not trying to hide or make myself out to be better than I am. I just respond instinctively to a, any situation or any person. And I think that oh, the thing that, I that of course, is new to me now is this documentary I've started doing. You know, well, I've been doing a few years now. And I think that people are prepared to answer my questions because they can see in my face that I won't hurt them. I'm not interested in digging people and probing and uh, and, and uh, trying to expose people. I, I guess I want to get at the truth. I want to try to see the world from their eyes, not just from mine. And not to pass judgment. On the other hand, if I feel that I want to pass judgment, I will. And I'll mm. say it. I don't think you should have done that, or I don't think that's a good idea. But, yeah, I think I'm, I
0: am i am authentic. You certainly are. And have you, I mean, do you despair at a world in which money seems to be equated with happiness more than ever, or not particularly? I suspect it's
1: always been uh, like this. But what I, what I don't like is unkindness. Uh, I think that's the thing that really upsets me and disgusts me. I like money. I mean, I like what money can bring. But I think if you only care about money, you're making a terrible mistake. Because money can't love you back. The one-way street with money. And um, people can love you back. So people must always come first. And I I enjoy having more money now than I've ever had. I enjoy it. But I, I don't uh, spend it in, a, in an insane way. And when I when I was in America, uh, I have to say I've, I've become... And I regret this. I've become rather anti-American. I see attitudes coming from America, which I dislike intensely. And I think one of them is their over-reliance on money.
0: Mm. It's
1: important. You have to earn it. It's good when you get it. But it isn't everything. It really isn't.
0: You lived in Los Angeles for... Quite 16 years, time. yes. And was that a financial decision? Did you just go where the cash might be?
1: Yes, I think it was. I, I got a I won an award for uh, Little Dorrit, a film mm. I made in England, Sam's films, Christine Edzard directing. And I thought, well, if they're going to give an award, LA Critics Circle Best Supporting Actress. It was um I shared it with um Geneviève Boujol, who's a fine Canadian actress, mm. and I thought, well, if they're going to give that an award like that to a completely unknown, fat English woman, I, I better go and see what what else I can get out of it. So I I systematically uh, prepared the way, and I I got myself a publicist. I got onto the morning show, and I got onto the Johnny Carson show, and then I got a a wonderful contract, and a wonderful agent, Susan Smith, who's dead now, but she was a magnificent agent. And, you know, I made a very good living. And then one day Susan said to me, you know, you're you're not hot anymore, you've gone cold. And she was right, and so I went back to England and
0: started again. Did you mind?
1: Well, I did mind because I thought, oh, well, does that mean I'm a failure? But I thought, no, I'm not really a failure because I've done well here, but now I've stopped doing well, so I must try and do well somewhere else. Well, the obvious place is England. I, I mean, I I had the chance I had several chances, Um, several, uh, well, I had a television series and it failed. I came out of it very well, but it failed and it was taken off the air. And so I then I went into films and I did lots of films and I was making quite a reputation for myself, but I wasn't the sort of success that you know, um, Daniel Craig is, or something like that. <laughs> um, but I'm, I am content. I think I would, I would like to be a, um, a more seriously regarded actress. That's the, the the, the area that I feel a, a little bit disappointed in myself. I would like to be at the top end, and I think I'm in. What I would call the front rank of the second raters, <laughs> and I would like to be in the first raters.
0: There's still time, Miriam.
1: There is. That's what I think, and I'm getting better and better. So uh, I am improving.
0: Is it like everything that the more one does, the better you get at something? I suppose it is.
1: I think the more opportunities as an actress you have. Uh, probably the better you get if you if you are uh, humble if you if you are smug you will never improve because you you think you're there already well i know i'm not so i know i will improve
0: Susan Smith, who you mentioned before, this does lead us on to sex. She said, don't tell anybody you're a lesbian. And that was something not commercially viable to be.
1: Not in those days. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about the late 80s, the early 90s. Um, But of course, I didn't heed her advice <laughs> I, I mean I didn't I didn't tell people when I went in for an interview but I you know my friends knew and generally speaking people knew because it was just too much fun you know it's fun being a lesbian and you you, you can't you can't really hide it I never I never could hide it and I never did hide it um as soon as I discovered I was a lesbian which was many years before I talked about it and of course I knew that I couldn't talk about it in a in a meeting but if I was you know my for example when I went up for a for a, a job with um, Warren Beatty and he said do you fuck and I said no and and he said uh, well actually I said yes but not you and he said oh why is that?" And I said because I'm a lesbian, and he, and then he said, "Oh, can I watch?" And I said, <laughs> "I put that in my book." And and um, I said, "Don't be ridiculous! I'll get on with the interview." And I got the job. I mean, he was he was a broad minded boy.
0: <laughs> there is a moment, Miriam, in your book which really stands out. I found it very heartbreaking. Um, was just after you'd fallen in love with Heather, who's still the great love of your life, and you're still very much together, and you went to Oxford to tell your parents, and they made you swear on the Torah that you would never have relations with another woman.
1: Yes, um, it's extraordinary to me that my father, who was a doctor, and you would have thought that he had enough breadth in him, but he, his life was so narrow. You know, he'd always been in a very small circle of the world. He he hadn't learnt anything really, and so you know, both my parents were deeply, deeply shocked, and um. And I just thought, well, I I better do, I better swear. And I knew I wouldn't be able to keep it. Because when you're young, and you know, and you feel, you feel sexual urges. You can't. It, it's very. It's a very powerful urge. It's not something that you can just um, cancel. You can't do that. So I lied. I swore that I would never sleep with a woman Again, knowing that I would. So I lied to my parents. But I wish I hadn't told them because they were not able to deal with it and, it. and it saddened them all the rest of their lives. And even when my mother couldn't talk, she would, she would get hold of my arm with the one good arm that she had, the one, the one grip in her hand, and say, get married, get married, get married. She'd say it over and over again. Because that's what she had longed for, to have grandchildren, to see me, you know, married. And how, you know, she couldn't, she wouldn't have understood that I had all the happiness that I could possibly have with Heather. She, she wouldn't understand that.
0: It didn't make them love you any less, though, I'm sure.
1: I don't think they loved me less. No, I they they were disappointed. I had disappointed the two people whom I loved most in the world except for Heather.
0: No. If a young girl came to you today and said, I'm a lesbian and I need to tell my parents and I'm not sure they'll take it very well, what would you say to her? Well, I would say,
1: work out why you want to tell them. Is it for you? or is it for them? And think very, very carefully as to whether you will damage their joy in you, which is what I did. I damaged my parents' joy in me. And I wish I hadn't, because some people just can't take it. I mean, this is the problem about about the gay world. It's now become Quite a powerful world. It wasn't then. And I'm glad it's become powerful. I'm glad that people, you know, are accepted and have more confidence. And I've been to several uh, Jewish gay weddings when the parents were there and were happy and, and understood. And that, that is a wonderful thing. But if they cannot, if it utterly shocks and depresses them, is it worth it? Is it worth ruining the happiness of people who care for you? Just, you know, grit your teeth and don't tell them. That's, and, and I'm not, uh, I mean, Ian McKellen, whom I'm extremely fond of does, doesn't agree with this. He thinks that's a shocking advice. But I'm afraid I do.
0: You've witnessed huge change in your life in terms of attitudes to sex.
1: Yes, I have. And I'm glad that there is change. I mean, you know, we... we Human beings are, are kind of funny creatures because we should be very glad of sex and grateful to it because it's the way we continue as a as a species and it's also huge fun it's it's a wonderful thing you know you have a jolly good time having sex and what a lucky thing it is that that continuing as a species is is something that we like doing imagine if it was horribly painful and miserable having to to procreate it would be you know awful but People get so, I don't know, worked up about it. I, I tend to see things a bit more simply than perhaps they they are. Um, and I just, I'm glad that, that, that we are an accepted group, that, that people realise that um, gender is not binary. It is much more complicated than that. And there is, as we have now learnt, uh, a sort of spectrum, from you know, along which there are all kinds of different ways of having sex and ex- and experiencing sex. Um, and it should not be one is not less than the other, as long as nobody's hurt. I don't, you know, obviously, you shouldn't mess with kids. That's just awful because that's that's a power thing. It's not it's not just about sex. But um, I just think we should let everybody get on with whatever they want to do, as long as it doesn't frighten the horses. When I talked to um, uh, Louis Theroux, yes, he never stopped talking about sex. I, <laughs> I thought no. he would never get off the subject, and I was getting quite bored with it. And I think that's something that it's very possible to get very bored with talking about sex you either you know do it or kind of shut up about it
0: <laughs> i it, i have to say cuz sex is so much a part i suppose your potty mouth for want of a better expression has become so much a part of your public persona which is of course not the real you um because well the...
1: it, it is the real me but it's just a part of the real me there's a lot of, there's a lot else Besides, you know, it's not—it's yes. not all there is. I mean, if it do, was all there is. I'd be deeply boring.
0: Do you mind that? Do you mind that you've had to become somebody who Louis Theroux wants to talk to about sex?
1: I ca- I can't mind it because it's opened so many doors rather than legs. <laughs> 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 but um, it just. I don't know, it just surprises me. I think I think sex is there for fun. It's, it makes me laugh. I enjoy talking about it up to a point. Um, and it obviously uh, makes, makes for good copy. Um, so I'm happy to provide that. It's just there are other things, and there's another side to me but There's a more serious side. Sex isn't all of life, it's part of life, a very important part of life, a joyous part of life, a discovering part of life, but only part.
0: And you have a very private, very fulfilling love at the root of your being. Yes,
1: yes, I'm unbelievably lucky that i found in my life so early really um someone very different from me entirely different but someone who who loved me and whom i love and i cannot tell you how much i value that and how grateful i am you know we've been together for Well, since 1968. I think that's 54 years or something like that.
0: Nearly 55.
1: Yeah. That's a long time.
0: That's an extraordinary thing. um,
1: To share your life and your ideas and your thoughts with someone whom you utterly trust. Utterly. Um, I have been deeply blessed and I'm just so bloody grateful
0: do you Do you miss her when you're not with her, or does it quite suit you to not be together all the time? Well,
1: um when i'm working i I don't think either we both work we're both professional people. I mean she's upstairs now sleeping because she, she doesn't sleep properly at night so and we have separate rooms you know we we've always preferred to have separate rooms. And she is a professional woman, and I am a professional woman, and we do our jobs. And when we're doing our jobs, we're fully focused on our jobs. But when we're not on our jobs is when we are together. And, you know, she's with me here, and I love being with her. I love talking to her. Um, We share many friends. We share interests, interests. She recommends me the detective stories I should read. And um, we discuss politics. She's like me, she's on the left. And I don't think I could love anybody who wasn't on the left. It would be very, very hard. Um, And she loves cats and travel and um, good literature and good music so the the sort of the the whole of my life is taken care of in a way I, and i really value it and i know how lucky i am because many people never find a love like that but i found it when i was 27 and i'm 81
0: oh, and wow. i am
1: bloody lucky
0: I read a very brilliant quote in your book in which you said, I've become more political as I've got older. I haven't mellowed, I've billowed.
1: <laughs> I liked that, yes. I thought, thought that was quite good bit of writing. Um, well, yes, I mean, I can't understand how people can be right-wing. You know, when I, when I think about Jacob Rees-Mogg, I, I think... What has made this monster, how can he be someone who sees the world in the terms that he sees it? How can he say to the people of Grenfell who burned in their their not ivory tower, how can he say you were unintelligent not to get out when they had been told to get out? what what allows him to see the world in those terms and the same with all these Eton cunts. <laughs> I just can't I can't bear it now Kim Philby was was not like that he came he was he went to a public school and he went to Cambridge but he was on the left and he, and his commitment to the left was so powerful that he became a traitor. And I don't know that I could go that far. It never happened. But I think that if you're, I think being right-wing is being a traitor to the human race. And I'd rather be a traitor to my country than a traitor to the human race.
0: I do have to ask you about your Today programme bleeper, which was very funny. <laughs> it was
1: not meant to happen. I, I you know, I, I was appalled by it, actually. I did not know that the microphone was up. And when my interview, which was about Robbie Coltrane, had finished, uh, and I got up from my chair, I thought, then Justin Webb said, um, "I bet you didn't think you were going to be sitting in the same chair as as Jeremy Hunt." And I thought that he must have said that from a from a a, a dead microphone. I could I couldn't I couldn't believe that he would have that would be part of his live interview with me. You see, I just no. assumed. That the mic that once that I had said thank you and stood up that that was the end and then they turned the mics down. I just assumed it, and I was wrong. <laughs> it was live, <lying. laughs> and when I realised that, I honestly I nearly died. I mean i i I, sh- I started shaking. I was so shocked. Oh, so it wasn't at all deliberate. Because I meant what I said, and I do think he's an absolute asshole and a, a dreadful person. But I would not have said it to his face, and I would not have said it on the radio, in the news. I mean that that you know for me, that Radio Four is is a temple. Radio yeah. Four is the Best of England, the BBC, in the in the old Wreathian sense, it, it's the best of what Britain has to offer, absolutely. And I was really embarrassed. I mean, the girl who was looking after me will tell you I was shaking. I had to be helped out of the studio. I was I was appalled. Oh, poor but you! It happened, and the, the producers were extremely nice about it. And 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 because I of course wrote an apology, um, because I I just felt dreadful, dreadful. How anyone could ever think that I would say that on the radio? Might say it in the Graham Norton show or something like that. That's different because people know what's coming. But you know when they're expecting a, and I'd just been giving a sort of eulogy to to Robbie Coltrane, whom I adored. So that was not one of my proudest moments, I can tell you.
0: What if it had been Boris Johnson? Would you have said something to his face?
1: Yes, I probably would have. I probably would have said um, something like, um, I think I'm going to go to the other end of the studio. I don't want to be defiled. I think I would have... But I wouldn't have said, you know, sort of cunts and fucks at him. No. I would have taken the high ground.
0: Do you despair at the state of English politics?
1: Yes. I'm in despair. I'm in despair for the world. I mean, look at America at the moment, what has happened there. With a a, a respectable political party espousing um, paedophilia and uh, as uh, 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 that um, Jewish people are are paedophiles and uh, you know, the QAnon and all these mad cults that they've made into the mainstream of the party. I think it's terrifying. Putin. You know, somebody asked me, what were the five people that I hated most in the world? And I said, Putin, Boris Johnson, David Cameron, Nigel Farage, and Benjamin Netanyahu. Mm.
0: They are wicked people. Brexit was horrifying to you.
1: Oh, it's, I can't tell you how, I i i felt cut in two. I, I, I'm really, really shocked at what ble- Brexit's done to England, to families, and to my life, because I wanted to be able to come and go, as I have always been able to, in this house that we bought in 73. How dare they do that? How dare they lie to the English nation that they were going to fund the National Health Service if if we got out of the EU? I mean, lies. And they knew it. I I just can't even begin to express what I feel about that. You are Brexit, Brexit is something completely wicked. I will never forgive them. I will never get out, get over it. I am outraged and insulted and furious. And I think Boris Johnson is a deeply disgusting
0: human being. And he's still not gone? No. No, he hasn't gone. And
1: he doesn't intend to go. He's going to go round the world making a fortune, spewing more lies. He's not even a very good speaker.
0: You are 81, as you say. Do you wish that you could live to see what's going to happen? Or do you think actually... Yes, uh,
1: but I am... Disabled now. I can't walk. I'm crippled with a, a condition called spinal stenosis, and um, it, you know, walking is painful. And I have it, it, life is a struggle. It's a struggle to go upstairs here and to do things. But I will not be stopped. So the only thing that will stop me is is death. And I hope that I live as long as possible that's all i can say i miss my friends that have died a lot of friends have died recently and i i do miss them very much mm. i mean i hope you notice in my book how big a portion of that is about my friends
0: because they're very important one, to you
1: one of one of the uh, reviews that i read in um, in on amazon said I couldn't stand this woman. I couldn't stand her book. It was all about her. Me, me, me. <laughs> <laughs> that really made me laugh. And I thought, well, you could have guessed it might be, since
0: it's an autobiography. <laughs> Did you reply to the review? I think you can. No,
1: no. But I I think I, I put it on Facebook <laughs> because I thought it was so funny
0: do you um you have written in the book about a terror I think you describe it of dying yes i
1: I'm not very grown up about dying. I think I am scared I'm possibly slightly less scared since I did a documentary on on it um but it is the the big unknown and um, I don't know what it's going to be like I can't
0: tell you you just have to deal with it when it happens and you have no best you have no belief in an afterlife which I suppose is that I don't I mean my 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 lovely therapist Margaret Branch said
1: she said I think it could be a party we could be having a wonderful party And we see all the people we've missed and we can reconnect with. And that's what I think is going to happen. So she had a very optimistic view. I don't think there is going to be a party. There is just going to be nothing. And I can't quite imagine what that's going to be like. But it'll happen. It's the one thing that we can all be sure of. Boris Johnson, as well as me, We will die. And I hope I do it um, with dignity. I hope I do it gracefully. I don't want to to die sort of screaming and swearing and dribbling and and, uh, urinating and shitting, you know. I hope that all my bodily uh, fluids are under control.
0: Thank you for listening to the Late Fragments podcast. This episode was the last in the current series, but I'll be back later in the year to talk religion, sex, politics and money with six more remarkable octogenarians. What have I learned from the conversations that I've had? I've learned that old age needn't be a barrier to achievement, that energy and a burning passion for the life that you're living and the work that you're doing is your greatest ally against the march of time. I've learned that growing older really is a state of mind, and that the search for meaning doesn't ever, shouldn't ever, stop. And that a sense of humour always, and especially when you're standing toe-to-toe with your own mortality, is essential. So off I go to find more inspirational interviewees who've really lived and continue to really live their lives. In the meantime, my huge thanks to my father, Robert, for sowing the original seed of this idea. To Harry Dundas for the sound production and original theme music. To YouTube for teaching me how to edit audio. We should never stop learning, however old we are. And to all of you for listening, for subscribing, and for telling your friends. Until next time, goodbye.